All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? stranger walks through the world hunting innocence, weakness. He's friendly to everyone, quick to guide opportune interactions out of earshot, building rapport, coloring thought clouds a heavy purple, until his charms drizzle over the meek. He'll claim to be a free spirit out for adventure, though some will find it odd he's alone in the world. Parents will begin to whisper, how does a grown man end up so confidently lost? And why is he talking to our children? It's always the teenagers he manages to magnetize. And he chooses the summer to see what will stick. Tourist towns are best. He can blend with the flock, though he's aware that whispers follow him. And that whispers soon whirlwind into screams. The stranger won't dawdle. He'll pour it on as soon as he's got one. Lamenting his mistreatment by society, his victimization, how he's just searching for good people. A good woman, a good friend. He'll slowly begin to pinpoint a prospective victim's pain, suggest or even implant it if necessary in order to mimic it. He's fabricating kinship, kinship he'll use to gain trust, trust he will use to get them into a compromising position in order to sexually assault them. And when the raping is done, he'll sometimes kill them. And then he'll disappear. 
Have you ever wondered where those fathers who went to get a pack of smokes one day and never came back went? Well, some went to become the stranger. Convicts, too. Back in the mid-20th century, keeping tabs on released sexual predators wasn't a thing. They were barely acknowledged for what they were, almost as if society were too embarrassed or scared to admit they existed. So, they were treated as anomalies, kicked down the road for someone else to deal with, scolded and told to cut it out. The stranger comes from everywhere. These days, for the most part, he's from the internet. But back in the 50s, it was the highway, slipping from town to town, armed with a smile at the soda shop, a camera on the beach, a ride to wherever you need to be. It don't matter none to him. All roads lead to his need, and the hunt is the best part. It's dangerous business, elusive and mysterious the stranger may be, but we've always known he was out there. We've heard the whispers and the warnings since we were children. Welcome to Dark Topic, I'm your host, Jack Luna. The following is a true crime happening. Don't be a stranger. Denville, New Jersey. A quaint little spot with a population of 6,000 back in 1953. A township known as the hub of Morris County and a place where anyone passing by on the highway would likely roll in for a bite to eat and maybe be charmed into returning again and again before someday retiring on one of the many little lakes the town is puddled with. It is a retirement community, and in the early 50s it was much the same as it is today. Though back then every little place was sleepy and pleasant on appearance, every town was today's small town, dignified by its welcome, its warmth, and its sense of safety. But of course nothing is as it seems, and Denville, despite all of its efforts, had its secret come out recently. Though keeping a secret for 70 years maybe achieved its purpose, and now it's just a story that needs to be told. Cracked open. Like a time capsule. A tail capsule. The Denville 13. That's the secret's name. Unearthed in detail by history teacher, author, and Denville resident Peter Zablocki, who had a hell of a time recovering the facts that make my retelling even possible. The Denville 13 is the name of the book. It's dry, and I didn't love it. But, you know, respect for the research and writing a book. It's just one of those where you're reading and you don't know why for stretches, like the author couldn't help but include all of his research. He's a historian, to be fair. Much of his research meant to show that he meant no disrespect to his beloved home of Denville, New Jersey, in digging up its secret. Also to hammer home that he, Zablocki, is not a true crime writer, but a historian who stumbled across the much-hidden case while researching World War II and the effect it had in his hometown. Zablocki barely spills the beans in the first couple chapters, then spends the rest of the story carefully picking those beans up. It was like pulling teeth getting all the details he withheld in his book. I eventually collected them through slips he made in online seminars and a podcast interview, as well as my own research, of course. I'm not sharing all this to brag about my research or anything. I'm just trying to tell you that this was difficult to dig up, and this is a case that you likely, I don't see how you would have ever heard it before. I barely heard it, and only one person has told it. To give you an idea of how tight-lipped this situation is, in one circumstance, Zablocki said he was going to share a photo that he didn't share in the book, and that it was very graphic. And when he showed the photo, it was all blurred out. Anyways, all that said, this is a fascinating case, 
not just in its details, but in its secrecy. If you were to Google the Denville 13 just a couple of years ago, nothing would show up. If you Google it right now, barely anything will show up. And we have historian Peter Zablocki to thank for anything that is there now. The Denville 13 were 13 Denville kids, aged 14 to 22, came together by chance one late summer's eve to manifest what would prove to be one of the biggest small-town stories never told. One of the all-time movie-worthy true crime tales never woven. And unlike every single Denville resident to ever have whispered it, admitted to its occurrence through gritted teeth while wringing their hands, shifting their feet, I'm allowed to just spill it. I get to just yap about it. Man, I can't wait to get into it. It's really something else. Boy, pretty friggin' neat that I just get to spill the old beans here, share the tea, let the cat out the old bag, as they say. Yep. It was the Greeks, I believe, that came up with spill the beans. They used to vote with black and white beans. And if someone spilled the jar, they'd be letting the election result out prematurely, you see. Pretty neat, eh? Let the cat out of the bag. Now, what the heck was that all about there? Ah, yeah, they used to sell piglets for a pretty price, and on occasion the sellers swap a kitten for a piglet there, something like that. I always figured it had to do with drowning cats in a bag, maybe letting one out after it had gotten wet and to go screaming bloody murder there. Okay, don't leave. I'm just <laughs> I'm just funning you. I'm just screwing around. <laughs> this is what it's like to hear a story in a small town. It's like being waterboarded. I just wanted to share the pain usually involved in hearing a small town story. It takes forever and it loses its way constantly. And if they don't want you to know it, you'll hear everything but it. And just when you think you've got the right direction, they'll point you down wrong street from Maine. Anywho, lucky for us, I just found the turnoff. Hop on in to my Hudson convertible, and let's cruise the strip known as Broadway in Denville, New Jersey's 1953 version. Soda pop shops, diners, a lover's lane, and of course, one giant Small Town Secret. Like a slow-moving bullet, the gleaming Hudson Hornet convertible with Virginia plates slides into New Jersey's impossibly quaint fold of Denville, population 6,000, sometime in the early summer of 1953. The flashy stranger within will stand out for a bit, then begin to blend renting a room and spending his money around town, endearing himself to the locals while slowly becoming familiar at the Denville Shack, Paul's Diner, the soda shop, and, of course, the town tavern. For our purposes, the stranger need not be entirely cloaked throughout this telling. So his name is Ross Midget. And though the townspeople don't recognize him as being from around here, he used to be. Not from Denville proper, but from one of the surrounding small towns. Rockaway, I believe, though you won't hear Ross talk about that, on account of him having been arrested back then for buggering a minor. That's how they put it, buggering a minor. Actually, I'm just funning you again. Here's how it exactly was framed, quote, Ross Midget, a member of a locally famous family at the age of 20, had been accused and found guilty of impairing and debauching the morals of a minor, end quote. So... Denville's summer stranger was a convicted sex offender, well off the radar as well as financially, after having served his time for raping a few 13-year-old boys. A few, if you recall, is more than a couple. Ross Midget has chosen Denville for its delinquency, 
as there are kids everywhere. In this post-World War era, in this golden age, many households have become accustomed to having both parents in the workforce. The men had been off to war while the women had contributed in the factories. The latchkey kid had been born across America. And in Denville, it had become ordinary for roving bands of teenagers who'd grown up almost as family to haunt the beaches, the hangouts, the theater, the lovers' lanes, at all hours. Denville, in the early 50s, was a sexual predator's playland. And the stranger, Ross Midget, wasn't the only one who'd planned to ride everything he could line himself up in front of at the kiddie park. 22-year-old George Campo, hair slicked back, sleeves rolled up, a cigarette forever dangling from his lips, was the... An insufferable bully and the type who stuck around his hometown long after his peers had deserted it, either in pursuit of an education, a military career, work, and family, say, maybe just adventure. George was the guy who stuck around, and in a town full of teenagers, became a sort of king as a result. He also became charged with a, quote, immoral act, which landed him in prison for a short stretch. This mystery morals charge lent to his dangerous reputation and further solidified George Campo as downtown Denville's unquestioned leader of the pack. That was the last one, I promise. Also, leader of the pack was released in 1964, a decade beyond this story, but, you know, a true art uh, knows no boundaries. Back then, it sure was easy to get away with sexually assaulting teenage boys as a man. It seems that both 22-year-old George and our story stranger, Ross Midget, had benefited greatly by society's preference to not know about such things. It turns out that George Campo had forcibly sodomized a younger man who still hung out with the crew destined to become Denville's secreted 13. And nobody really talked about it. Probably only the perp and victim were the only two, besides mortified family members, that knew about the incident. So knowing this, it's ironic, or maybe just par for the course in such situations, that George Campo was the first to suggest that something be done about the queer fella who kept hitting on the boys at the soda shop and the Denville Burger Shack, and at the beach and the theater, even in the bar and nearby Rockaway where the underage were served indiscriminately. Later, many would question where the police had been, but none would wonder at the parents. It's just the way things were. Teenagers ran the town, kept it running, especially through the summer. And not even the most diligent mid-20th century small-town lawman could have guessed that as the cash-flush stranger geared up to cash out and the summer of 53 began to die, Denville's free spirit was about to die with it. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition, Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, 
And it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today. All right, everybody, my life in a book. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom may have given you a lifetime of stories, and this is your chance to give her a way to share them. I'm looking forward to using it with my lady and uh, having her do it for my kids. I think it would be a cool thing for them to have, something quite different, something to hang on to. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code DARKTOPIC at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com. Use code DARKTOPIC for 10% off today. The stranger with the beautiful car. The bullets slowly tearing through the heart of town. Can't believe his good fortune. In the passenger seat sits a smooth-talking 17-year-old. In the back, warming seats that Midget would kill to swap laps with, squirm two nervous and deliciously sweaty 14-year-old boys. He wants the young ones badly. The 17-year-old is basically cover, though nobody has shown him much suspicion. Midget makes small talk with the older boy, distracting him while sneaking glances at the rear view to appraise what he hopes will be the scratch for his deep, insatiable itch. He is so distracted that he doesn't see that they are being followed. He doesn't recognize that as much as he is trying to distract the 17-year-old, the 17-year-old is doing the same to him. But the young man gains Midget's full attention when he suggests they go to Savage Beach. It's a hot night, evident by how the t-shirts are sticking to the lithe, supple torsos of the boys in the back, by how the napes of their necks glisten like the skin of a freshly washed peach. The stranger makes a U-turn on Broadway, then veers onto Savage Road. The night is young, just how he likes it. Behind on the road on Broadway, George Campo is cursing at his cronies. Don't fucking lose them, turn around. Campo couldn't care less about the safety of the boys he'd set as bait for who they were calling the fag. He just worried that the fun would end. It's late August and soon all of his friends will be back in high school. High school, somewhere George hadn't been for five or more years now. Unless you want to count prison as school, which, in some ways, I suppose it is. Especially for shitheads like George Campo. He'd heard about this fancy-pants stranger a few times through the summer, but it wasn't until recently where George had begun plotting. The man clearly had money. He must have bought every kid under the age of 15 a float at the soda shop by now. 
And though George had convinced his crew in the car and the car behind him, as well as the three being hustled away to Savage Beach somewhere ahead, that the motive was to scare the fag out of town, what George really wanted was violence. He wanted to exercise his control over this crew. And he wanted to extort this stranger. Earlier that day, the gang of Denville boys now tailing the errant bullet Midgets Hudson had heard a rumor that the stranger had made inappropriate advances towards a local 11-year-old boy, that he put a soft, salacious string of words in the kid's ear while running a hand over him. It didn't take much convincing. The 22-year-old compo had put together a group of a dozen guys, aged 14 to 17, and created a plan, a plan that included using the boys he fears now that he may have just lost his bait to the savvy stranger. As they speed after him in pursuit down Savage Road, Campo relaxes when he spots the Hudson parked at the beach. He waves his hand at the window, and the tailing car does as it has been ordered. Campo is driven away to lay in wait with his car load at Lover's Lane, out in the bush on the old towing trail by the canal. The vehicle he'd signaled to casually pulls into a parking spot by the beach, and the teens within pile out to smoke, comb their greasy hair, and scope the scene. The plan is in full swing. It's seven o'clock. When the sun goes down, the boys on the beach will suggest Lover's Lane to the stranger. And the most fun they've had all summer can begin. The stranger, Ross Midget, sits on the beach and enjoys the view as his new friends strip down to cool off. He'd met the boys at the soda shop a place he'd casually frequented for the entire summer. Striking out time and time again, finishing most days at the bar, then dragging his baseball bat back to his rental to masturbate all over the snapshots he'd taken with his sick, sick head. He knows it, that he's sick. His time in Rathway, an overcrowded nuthouse of a prison with zero attention for reform, had done little to help him, other than provide motivation to never return. Ross feels good. He looks good. His urges keep him young in so many ways. God, he's so sick. But the sickness keeps him busy, at least. Constantly focused, enthralled, on the hunt. He'd been close the other day, so close that he literally touched it. A mistake to do that publicly. But nobody had noticed him groping the 11-year-old, and now look, his patience had paid off. Three of them. Well, two. He'll get rid of the older one tonight. But how? Ross Midget, Denville's summer stranger, sits and contemplates his present on the beach in his breezy summer shirt and slacks. He slips off his leather loafers to enjoy the sand between his toes and watches the sun begin to melt on a skillet of clouds just above the horizon. The boys return from the water, shivering, nipples hard, bellies flat, backlit by the most beautiful light, the dying light. You boys want to go drinking with me? Of course they do. They're punk kids, punk kids who are basically asking for it. So what's the harm in giving it to them? When the stranger's vehicle fails to turn into Lover's Lane, the boys tailing him decide that they have to follow. Lying in wait, George Campo and crew are starting to worry. They've scared off half a dozen cars, creeping through the old trail in search of a place for their passengers to do some necking. And it's getting to the point where they feel they must give up their ambush spot 
when the other half of the Denville 13 arrives at a completely hazardous speed and halts in a cloud of dust. The driver jumps out and tells Campo that the stranger took the bait to a bar in Rockaway, and they've been in there for an hour. Campo blasts the occupants, telling them to get back there then, and notices a new boy in the car. He'd assembled a crew of 12, and this new boy made 13. An unlucky number. What the fuck's he doing here? It's explained that the kid had been coming out of the theater, that they were giving him a ride. Campo was already pissed that another younger boy, just 14 like this one, had come along unexpectedly, being chaperoned by his older brother at their mother's request. This isn't a fucking daycare, for Christ's sakes. Get back to the bar, you fucking idiots. They make it just in time. The 17-year-old is in the parking lot, stumbling around. He tells the boys that the stranger is getting them hammered, probably so he can bugger them. Later, the bar owner will nearly lose his business for serving the miners. But without what happened next, nobody would have complained a bit. Rockaway, like Denville, was basically run by kids, and if they brought a man with money to burn in on a slow Saturday night at season's end, they wouldn't have been turned away, ever. The 17-year-old turns away now and stumbles back into the bar, under heated instruction, to get the fag over to Lover's Lane, and a furious George Campo. It's not long after that he re-emerges with Ross Midget, the stranger, and his two targets, 14-year-olds. All are clearly drunk. And it's shocking, even to a group of kids in the thralls of a plan to jump a stranger in the woods, when the stranger opens the driver's side door for one of the 14-year-olds to drive. The Hudson then weaves out of the lot, its lights only coming on after its taillights blink a few times, then steady as the car halts, and inside Midget reaches over to turn them on turning himself on in the process. A couple pulls into Lover's Lane around 1 a.m. and attempts to take the spot where George Campo and Co. lay in wait. They are spooked by their headlights illuminating the face of Campo and the others, who were feared hoods in Denville. The shaken couple back out and drive to a spot further down the lane. Later, this incident would provide investigators with proof and a timeline. At 1.30 a.m., the stranger's Hudson convertible, top up, finally pulls into Lover's Lane. Its driver is 14 years old. In the passenger seat sits Ross Midget, extremely excited for what is to come next. The 17-year-old, whom Midget was unable to shake by getting extremely drunk, points out the predetermined spot shown to him earlier by George Campo. The vehicle comes to a stop, and the two boys in the back get out. The young driver is apparently still in conversation with the stranger. More accurately, he is in the web of a slowly approaching spider, a sexual predator, whose facade is slowly being melted by its overwhelming lust. From behind, the tailing vehicle slowly pulls into the lane, lights off, and blocks the Hudson in. From the front emerges George Campo, and soon his entire collection of accomplices, 13 in total, including Campo, the Denville 13, are assembled around the stranger's car, complete once the boy is rescued from the convicted boy raper's clutches. What happens next is a blur. Campo demands the stranger get out of his vehicle. Midget refuses. His face is illuminated by a flashlight, and one of the boys maybe quips, Like a queer in the headlights. Ross Midget is then ripped from the vehicle and smashed over the head with a soda bottle. The young man who earlier had accepted a ride home takes off running, 
He didn't ask for any part of this, though later he'll be held just as culpable as most. The 14-year-old who tagged along with his older brother steps away and is joined by his big bro. The two look on as the stranger is beaten by George Campo, as well as a few of the larger boys, wanting to prove themselves. When one of the boys restrains another who is raining down blows, the spell seems to snap over the group. They back away, revealing the blood-shrouded head, still attached but at an awkward angle, on the body of the stranger. The nearly dead body of Ross Midget. Who has ejaculated in his gray slacks? Just a little. Panic ensues. The group rushes to cover up what they have done, yelling at one another. Compo takes control, ordering some to rob the man, ordering others to stage a sloppy suicide by stuffing the exhaust with brush. In the end, they scatter, taking with them a wallet and leaving behind two cameras, as well as a crime scene that as the night begins to fade with Sunday morning's hesitant arrival, becomes a murder scene as Ross Midget, Denville's summer stranger, succumbs to his massive injuries. A week later, as the story begins to come out as to what was discovered that Sunday morning in late August, a day that would go down as a day that never happened in Denville, New Jersey's history, all of the newspapers were collected by someone and stowed away. The national news would say some of it, but in Denville, what occurred in the early morning hours of August 30th, 1953, isn't much worth remembering. There's no use in talking about how a Mrs. Lillian Jones spotted that summer stranger's fancy vehicle on the tow trail and had her nephew go take a look, a look that sent him screaming back out of the bush moments later. No use in mentioning how a wallet was found in a booth at Paul's Diner, a wallet belonging to one Ross Midget, a man later discovered to have been a recently released child sex offender who had been openly stalking Denville's youth all that summer. No use in mentioning the Denville 13, all those boys who were soon connected to the wallet, to the lover's lane, the bar, the beach sightings. Twelve of them between the age of 14 and 17, one 22, known by all to be mostly good kids, corralled and held at the fire department, their pictures taken, their names and their parents' names shared in the soon-to-be-disappeared local papers. No need to mention how this was the single largest indictment for one murder in U.S. history. No need to talk about how just about every boy except that scumbag George Campo, George who put them all up to it, no doubt, got away with the lightest charge possible. All these kids did a charge of, quote, conspiracy to commit atrocious assault and battery. Compo and another of the older boys got the book thrown at them, locked them up and threw away the key, but the rest, they'd been through enough. After serving short sentences, the rest of the 13 were left to be. The stranger, Ross Midget, was a journeyman child rapist. And in the end, what Denville had to say about that was quite clear and quite simple. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>